0: For listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit Sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Good morning, Sozo. How are you? Surprise. <clears throat> I am not Mark, Pastor Mark Blair, <clears throat> but uh, I am on staff here as part of our associate uh, pastor team, and so <clears throat> I have the privilege of speaking to you this morning. How many of that are so new here you've never heard me preach? That's about a third of you, okay. We'll we'll pray for you, we'll lay hands on you here in a minute. (laughs) Hope God helps you hear us. (laughs) For the rest of you, um, you've probably heard before. Um, So, we are... um, in a rather long study of the book of John. John uh, Pastor Mark always says it'll probably be about two years plus before we ever get through it. And uh, I think he's understating that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Having been uh, listening to his great preaching here from week to week, and we're only in chapter four, I think it's going to probably be like more like three years out. But anyway, so um, when Mark... Um, And Ty decided to take some R&R, and uh, uh, they are in uh, the land of the palm trees and the white sands of Hawaii right now. And the funniest thing happened on the way to the drive-in for them yesterday, and I thought I would tell this story. Um, Another family in our church that have been here many, many, many years, the Campanos, are also vacationing in Hawaii, and they both happen to be on the same island, and they both happen to be traveling out trying to find some far distant favorite drive-in place on the back side of the island, and they both end up at the same place at the same time (laughs) and meet each other, and they are shocked, and we got a selfie here yesterday of all all four of them kind of smiling for the camera, and I hope the, the food was good because it's kind of a unique thing for that to happen. What a small, small world! Anyway, uh, Mark will be back in the pulpit next week, and so um, he tasked me with uh, either. You no, know, there were no choices this time. Sometimes he says, "You know, Pastor Doug, you're the kind of the senior uh, minister. You've been around a long time. You can do whatever you want." But uh, I always say, no, give me some direction. So what we're going to do is go back into John chapter 4. We're going to go back to the passage uh, where we're looking at the woman at the well and the conversation with Jesus. And, and Mark um, very specifically started uh, two weeks ago uh, looking at the, the, the worship topic that comes up in this conversation. And so in just a minute, we're going to look at some verses And then last week, uh, Lindsay did a great job of talking about how important it is to have your heart right, and the question you always ask when, in in the process of giving proper worship is, how's your heart doing? Good job. And so now, I have to kind of preach on this topic. Um, And so, if you would not mind uh, standing with me, uh, we're going to read this uh, passage together Uh, As Mark says, we don't stand out of some kind of tradition, but uh, to honor uh, the Scripture because we believe that it is the inspired Word of God. And so rather than read the entire passage that that we've done many times the last few weeks, I want to just jump right into verse, I think, verse 15, so you can follow on the screen or in your Bible. This will be John 4, uh, 15, and then we'll read down through... Uh, Verse 24, and then look at it in more detail in just a moment. The woman, this is the woman at the well. Jesus has started a conversation with her. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. He's talking about this eternal water that he has, that he can give himself. Give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one uh, that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is very true. Verse 19, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her then, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from or or to the Jews, to the world, through the Jews. But the hour is coming and and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Let's just pray together. Father, we submit this scripture. I submit these notes. I submit all the preparation that went on this week, and all the meditation, all the prayer, all the Bible study. I submit that to you for your Handiwork. I ask you to put it together so that it makes sense. That we leave here receiving uh, something from the scripture, from the very heart of God concerning this passage and concerning the topic of worship. And we learn something uh, not only about you, but about ourselves in relationship to this great topic. And so we ask you to speak to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen as you're seated, you may greet someone or give them a high five or a low five. You're sitting down Let me do just one point of review on this first slide. Uh, When Mark opened uh, the topic of worship from this passage, he said that generally he was going to be looking at covering four broad topics. And then he proceeded in his message two weeks ago to concentrate on number one, which was worship is first about God, and then it's about us. Remember that? And he talked about the fact that the true seeker-sensitive service is the place where God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. He is the seeker that's looking for people to worship him uh, in spirit and in truth. And then Lindsay so well talked about the more personal side of heart preparation and in relationship to worship. And so what I'm going to try to do today is much more than what I probably need to, but that's my privilege for the next half hour or so. And so we're going to probably touch a little bit on all, four, on all, on all three of these other points, but I'll let Mark specifically deal with them in more detail. But probably number two would be Uh, the general idea of what I want to talk about, and that is that worship is really about real life. And I'm titling uh, my message today, The Christian Fragrance of Worship. Do you realize, I found this out this last week, that uh, the American public spends about $60 billion a year on deodorant, <laughs> antiperspirant, perfume, and cologne. And that was last year, and they're predicting it'll be more this year. 60, that's six, zero with a B. Billion-dollar sales on an average year because Americans are concerned about smelling correctly. Well, I was thinking about that in relationship to some of the thoughts that were going through my mind, and uh, it suddenly occurred to me when we're talking about worship that we might be encouraged to ask the same kind of question in terms of our spiritual life. What kind of fragrance does your, your Christian life offer to God? Um, You've probably seen um, accounts or maybe even watched uh, on video where, um, uh, I forget now what kind of machine they would be using, but uh, if they're searching for lost people, they have uh, an infrared camera that can actually pick up body heat. And uh, you know you've seen these pictures where they show the camera, and, and you see this kind of X-ray vision of this house or this location, and all of a sudden there's a little glowing piece of something down in there, and they find out that there's uh, uh, maybe a person in the house or someone who has been lost. They can find them because they can see the the body heat that they're producing. And as I was thinking about that this last week in relationship to to worship, I thought that was a great analogy. If we could somehow see all of us from God's perspective, I wonder, not so much body heat, but fragrance, the aroma of your Christian life. In this... um, This passage, chapter 4 of John, it is the woman at the well who brings up the topic of worship. Because Jesus has some pretty specific things to say about her personal life that she didn't think anybody knew except maybe her and the guy she's living with. And so she immediately perceives that this Man has some kind of supernatural power. You must be a prophet. And in her mind, when she's talking supernatural things, immediately it goes back to her way of worship. That's how she defines supernatural uh, activity is in this context of how people worship their gods. And, of course, the conversation goes like this. Well, our fathers have worshiped in this mountain for centuries, and you, a Jew, say that we're supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem. So immediately you see this this contrast in her mind between how they worship and their worship form, and the Jewish worship and the Jewish worship form. And in her mind, there's this competition about what is real worship. And Jesus, of course, is never looking at Form or organization he wasn't looking at which mountain was more correct, Mount Gerizim, which was the mountain where they would have been worshiping as Samaritans, and by the way, if you wanted to, you could you could probably do it while're actually while you're listening to me, you could actually Google Samaritan worship, and you will find that there are still Samaritans still offering animal sacrifice still in, in Israel in this area where this woman is meeting with Jesus at the well. So it was a very ingrained process that she was involved in. And so she brings up the topic of worship. And when Jesus is addressing the worship, and he's talking about the Father seeking such to worship, and, and true worshipers, uh, must worship in spirit and truth. He uses a phrase which, uh, in terms of theological terms, is an emphatic phrase. Those who worship can, if they want to, worship in spirit and truth. Those who worship have this option if they would like to qualify as true worshipers. Now, this is one of those command phrases, these, this emphatic phrase, Jesus is, um, is, is unfortunate, well, fortunately, he is very black and white on this topic. There's only one way to worship God in an acceptable manner, and that worship must be worship that is in spirit and in truth. And so he's, in fact, saying to this woman at the well, your system doesn't qualify, The Jewish system doesn't qualify, and what he's actually saying is, I am here to bring a whole new system of worship into existence in the world. Jesus was not only the fulfillment of all those Old Testament worship pictures, and we'll be looking at some of them in just a moment, but he was the new and living way to worship the God God of, of all creation. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If you remember nothing else, I did take a cold tablet this morning and my nose is still running. So, I apologize ahead of time. If you remember nothing else, remember this emphatic phrase. Jesus is not giving us suggestions. He's not giving us several options. It's very black and white here. If you're going to be a proper worshiper, if anyone, any human being is going to worship uh, the God of heaven, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. And all of a sudden, he raises the bar beyond any Samaritan organization, any Jewish system of worship, and in fact, above any and all human efforts to worship in a in a a naturally formed way. He, he raises the bar into the spiritual realm and defines it differently than anyone in the human level has done. Let's look just uh, at, a, at a couple of things here in, in relationship to this Samaritan worship experience. Here, in my mind, what this woman is thinking about when she says to Jesus, Uh, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. In other words, this is how worship should work for me. Isn't this how worship should work for all of us? Next slide. Thank you. Samaritan worship and Jewish worship, like all human worship, is preoccupied with the following things. Now think about her comment. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. In her mind, worship was all about place, all about location, all about a sacred site—something you can touch and feel and scoop the ground with, scoop the dirt of the ground. In her mind, worship was a historical, uh, traditional, hist- a heritage uh, thing. She was worshiping pro- uh, uh, correctly in her mind simply because she had been born a Samaritan. And some Christians feel the same way, that their worship is acceptable just because they were born into a Christian family. Also, in her mind, worship was background and custom and all the practices that had been very specifically developed down through the centuries. In fact, it goes all the way back to uh, the divided kingdom of, of Israel when, when Jeroboam and Rehoboam had issues and God divided the kingdom. And in that division, um, King Jeroboam decided to create his own worship system that would rival the Jerusalem system. He was afraid people would leave the northern kingdom traveled to Jerusalem. So he set up his own worship system, which is, was two golden calves. I don't know what the preoccupation was with golden calves. But he, put out, he set up two golden calves and actually created a substitute for the Jewish religious system. And that was the beginning of the Samaritan heritage all the way down through those years. That's why Jesus says, you guys really even don't even know what you're worshiping. We do, even though the, Jewish, the Jews had, were rejecting Jesus, at least they understood what, in a very basic sense, they were worshiping. But this is her perspective. Worship was all about place, all about location, all about history, all about the past, all about background and, and custom. And Jesus says, no, we've got to raise the bar here a little bit. So then he defines... What true worshipers are, and those that the Father is seeking. Those who are true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Let's just take the first portion of that. Must worship in spirit. Now, I don't have, excuse me, I don't have a. a, a nicely worded definition like Pastor Mark does. But these are the thoughts that came to me as I was thinking about what Jesus must mean when he's talking about worshiping in spirit. If it's not at the location, if it's not heritage and background and custom and, and uh, uh, sacred locations, what does worshiping in spirit actually mean then? Well, here's what I think it means. It has to do with internal heart soul, and mind. You can't put your finger on it. You can't grab it. You can't define it very well. You certainly can't see it. But nevertheless, it is the internal point where you and I are real people in our soul. Worshiping in spirit meaning we're worshiping from the deep place of motive and intent and down in the very base affections of who we are as spiritual soul based people it also in my mind means the those invisible expressions of the spirit core of the human makeup that in my understanding was what the father was seeking I'm sure he appreciated all of their ritual efforts. I'm sure he was glad that they were making some kind of effort, but it wasn't qualifying. He actually uh, quotes, Jesus quotes from, I think it's the prophet Isaiah, in regard to his own people, the Jewish people. And he says this, You go through all of the forms... You, you have the ritual down. You understand the sacrifices. Uh, you have the organization put together uh, so very precisely, and you know exactly when and how and, and, and what kind of sacrifice to bring. But in doing all of that, you're missing the, the main point, and that is that your heart is somewhere else. I think the wording is, your heart is far from me. Go through the motion without any heart. That is what I would probably call false worship. If true worship is this kind of worship in spirit, from the heart, from the mind, from the deep motives of our spiritual being, then false worship would be having our hearts somewhere else but going through the motions. Let's look at worship must be in truth. This is the kind of tension that that Jesus presents here here's what I think he's saying as I define worshipping in truth. It would be all hard expressions that comply. With God's will, God's nature, and God's eternal purpose as it's defined in God's word, his, his insp- the inspired scripture. So, Jesus is not just trying to create this ethereal, non-content kind of worship experiencing experience. He is tying it down to something measurable. True worship is spiritual worship, but it 's done in a biblical way it's done within the confines of god's will, god's nature, any kind of worship effort that would, would be in conflict to the way God operates wouldn't wouldn't be true worship couldn't be true worship. It might be nice effort, might look nice, it might be very polished but It wouldn't qualify for true worship. So, worshiping God correctly must be, that's the emphatic phrase, must be in spirit and in truth. It's not primarily what you do externally. It's all about what you do internally. It's all, as Lindsay said, it's all about the heart you can actually have the external all mixed up and have your heart right and God receives your worship. Now, he would like to probably make your worship more biblical in time, but the heart can be right and the form can be wrong, but the form can be right and the heart can be wrong, and that disqualifies someone from being a true worshiper. Now, what I tried to do on this next slide is go back to those three original points that the Samaritan uh, woman, I think, was making when she was talking about her own worship experience there on Mount Gerizim with her practicing what her forefathers had developed. So with this next um, slide, she's thinking worship that is local Worship that is site-related, that's place-bound. And Jesus is talking about a, a worship experience that is eternally mobile. Because you are the worship site. Always. It's never the place. It's always you. It's always your heart. It's always where you are at. If you're driving with your kids, with your grandkids, in church, hands up, hands down, smiling, not smiling, you are the worship site. It's always about you. It's always this mobility, this eternal mobility of your soul. And so you can be anywhere. You can be, I remember the very first time we drove through central Oregon and I came up on Crater Lake and walked over to the edge and looked out on that just incredible scene. Uh, Something in my heart just said, God, this is gorgeous. You have done an amazing thing. And then I think it was that same trip or one of the other trips. We left the mountain. I got down on the road and was going too to, to fast through central Oregon and got pulled over and got a traffic ticket in Oregon, $171 speeding ticket after I had just been on the mountaintop worshiping. <laughs> now I'm on the road. I'm on the road again. And... Uh, and I blame my family because they had me singing some silly song and I was distracted. And, and I think it was uh, down by the bay where the watermelons grow and we were making up silly rhymes. And all of a sudden the light started and when I, when I was supposed to be 55 miles an hour, I was traveling about 75. Well, God's looking for worship from the heart even on the road with the sheriff, as well as on the mountaintop when you're enjoying the view of, of, of Crater Lake. It's all about where you're at in your heart. You are the site. And everywhere you go, every place you find yourself, you are actually bringing with you a worship site. You go to work, you're bringing the worship site. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament picture. You're, you're actually bringing an altar into your workplace. You're actually bringing uh, a place of worship into your family setting or, or in your recreational setting. Whatever the, wherever you are, you are the worship site. And if people are around you close enough where they can actually scent, smell the scent of your Christian worship... They're going to ask themselves about you and the quality of your life, or maybe not. Maybe they'll be around you and not want to ask you any questions. They should be around us long enough to eventually smell the sweet aroma of the sacrifice of Jesus in our life as we sacrifice our life for him. Going on. Worship, I was thinking about this this week. Worship is always a present tense experience. If your worship is defined by what you, how you worshiped yesterday, it doesn't qualify. If your worship is defined by the way your church used to do it 10 years ago, or has, as the Samaritan woman said, as her forefathers have set up for them to do, it doesn't qualify. We appreciate your effort, but it doesn't qualify. You are always the current expression of real worship. You're the site and you're the current expression, always, no matter where you're at. And lastly, it is non-ancestral, meaning it isn't dependent on where you came from. We were, I was just talking with Brandon earlier today, and he's got some wonderful Swiss roots. One of his bucket lists is to go back to Switzerland at some point because he has family there. Sorry, Brandon, but that doesn't qualify you for being a good worshiper. It might be a great trip, and I'd like to go with you maybe to Switzerland, but on the worship topic, no qualification. It's non-ancestral. The only qualifier that you actually possess is your humanity. Being born a human sets you apart as in all of God's creation, as the, the one thing that God created that can voluntarily worship. It's your humanity. I have no idea where we're going on time. So what I've tried to do so far is look at the woman at the well and kind of her general perspective of what worship meant to her. And Jesus says, well, thanks for the effort. I appreciate the Samaritan style and the Jewish style, but I've come to raise the bar True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And as Mark so eloquently pointed out, that's what Jesus is looking for. The Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, what I want to do is just kind of jump back into the Old Testament and look at a couple of passages. We can't go there in a lot of detail, only because if we do, I'll get bogged down in some of the theological stuff, and there's just so much to it. But I want to kind of paint a picture of the Old Testament type of the altar sacrifice. Because What we're going to see as we close today is the New Testament writers saw that image and pulled forward the application of that altar site of worship and did two things. One, they said Jesus was the fulfillment of every Old Testament sacrifice. And then beyond that, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit's outpouring on us, is asking us in every place that we go to also be an altar sacrifice sacrifice. Site where our lives emanate the aroma of Jesus. So you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 8, I was thinking about the origins of worship, the origins of the problems that we've had with worship, and I suddenly thought to myself, whether this is a revelation or maybe it's new to you, it's kind of a new thought to me, that the fall did not simply bring sin into the world and separate man from God, but it actually ruined the worship atmosphere of the Garden of Eden. Oh, there was a worship atmosphere? Yes, there was. Before the fall, Adam and Eve on a daily basis, lived under the conscious awareness of the presence of God. He protected them, he provided for them, he assisted them, he helped them. He actually brought all the animals and they were named by Adam. And then, when we see the description of the fall in verse uh, 8, and and we're not going to look in detail there, you can open and look if you want to, but This scene is described where God comes, the Bible says, in the cool of the evening, when the cool breezes are beginning to cool down the hot day. And God comes and walks in the garden. The language actually says, the voice of the Lord, or the sound of God's walking in the garden was heard by Adam and Eve. The, the, the literal Hebrew means this. The, the word they use for sound in my Bible, I think, I think it says sound. Some of the earlier, older translations actually uses the word voice. How, does, how do you see God's voice walking in the garden? Well, literally, it actually means God came calling them. God's voice was reverberating through the garden. Adam, Eve, I'm here. It's time for a little communion. Adam and Eve would come from wherever they're at in the garden. I mean, I'm I'm supposing this probably was the case. It doesn't describe this in this kind of detail, but it is implied. God comes. He's expecting them to have a meeting with him. So the, so the general presence of God now becomes a very specific communion and intimacy with, with God, the creator. And apparently, this is a daily exercise. They fall into sin. There's deception and disobedience. And they and God arrives and is looking for them. And his voice is calling to them. And they... Are hiding because of their sin. And he asked them, you know, who told you you were naked? Well, we just kind of discovered this. (laughs) Uh, Really? Okay. Uh, And then God, of course, deducts quickly. Did you eat of the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, they had. Well, I want to suggest to you that the sin was not only a, separ- a, a, a created separation between god and adam and eve and all humans that were would come out of their loins the bible says but their sin ruined poisoned eliminated stopped the worship atmosphere in the garden and part of what jesus is restoring as he comes back uh, through, down through the centuries, comes back and goes to the cross and offers an acceptable sacrifice to God as he solves the sin problem and, and makes possible, again, a sweet atmosphere of worship in your garden, my garden, our relationship with God. Let's look at um, the next slide. Moving forward from Genesis chapter 3, if you go to Genesis chapter 8... I would like to actually like to go there if I can fi- make my um, make my Bible work and it doesn't want to work so I will um, try to remember this in this setting, uh, we have what the bible uh, ref- what we refer to as the first mention of altar worship in the Scripture. This is right after the flood. Noah has spent over a year uh, with his family. That's in an ark. That would be bad enough, but to be in an ark with all these animals and taking care of them, when they finally reach their location and the, and the, the, the flood dissipates and the water dissipates, I'm sure he was so anxious to get out of that ark Get away from all of the pressure of taking care of family and animals and so on. But the Bible says the first thing that that Noah did was that he built an altar and sacrificed one, actually several, of the clean animals that had come with him in the ark. And the Bible says this, God smelled the aroma of this sacrifice and decided that two things, one, he would never... He would never bring a flood on the earth again. And two, he would never, ever destroy all living things, ever. Because Noah offered his sacrifice, and the smell of the sacrifice um, was pleasing to God. And I was thinking, well, does God just like barbecue or something? What is it about God that liked? No, what God was smelling, if I can say this, is the heart of Noah. Because through the sacrifice, God, Noah is expressing his heart of gratitude. He comes out of the ark. He could have done a lot of things. He could have organized a search party. Let's go out and explore. He could have tried to find a place to settle down. Where's the best place to build our house and put our tents up and so on. The very first thing he does, he comes out of the ark and says to his family, Get out there and gather up the stones. We're going to do the, the, the very most important thing after all these many months in the ark. We're going to worship the living God. And that first act of worship smelled so good to God that he promised he would never destroy the earth again. Now, picture if you would, go to the next one. Um, Picture if you would this scene. Because there's something very important going on in this setting. What's happening in this simple first mention of altar worship becomes the pattern for all Old Testament burnt sacrifice worship expression from that point on down to the all the way, actually beyond um, Jesus going to the cross, but it's only because the Jewish people didn't realize he was the fulfillment of all those altar sacrifices. But here's what you see. The setting, you have a worshiper, you have an altar, you have a sacrifice, You have fire, and all of that results in smoke and aroma that wafts upward to God. And every time you see an altar worship experience from that point on, even though at times it's very elaborate, they build a temple. Solomon's temple was massive. Herod's temple was even bigger. Um, Moses had a little simple tabernacle, but it was much bigger than a simple altar. Always it's the same thing. Worshipper, altar, sacrifice, fire, smoke, and aroma. Paul actually says of Jesus, when he went to the cross, he was, he offered himself as a sweet aroma to God on our behalf. So Jesus fulfills this picture. But you see this all the way through. Now let's jump to the New Testament, and we're going to try to wrap this up. If I can do this. think I can the next couple of minutes. Jesus arrives on the scene. He willfully goes to the cross, offers himself as a true sacrifice, not a living, well, he was alive at the beginning, but he was a true sacrifice. He actually was killed. His blood was shed on the cross. He goes to the cross, fulfills Every picture of Old Testament sacrifice that you could imagine, every element of the requirements of the law were fulfilled in his sacrifice on the cross. At that point, all of Judaism should have been cheering the end of the sacrificial system. But they weren't because they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. So they actually continued on until God was eventually forced to destroy the entire city and the temple itself. I think it was 70 A.D. But that's another issue. So Jesus then is resurrected. He ascends into heaven and pours out his spirit on the church. And then the scripture through the New Testament begins to ask of us, to give the same kind of sacrificial offering, but this time in spirit and in truth. So that our, our Christian walk on a daily basis is an expression of sacrificial dedication to God. So every place we go, we are the site, we are the altar, we are the aroma as our life is expended, you actually realize you are expending your life. You're burning your life up for God. In fact, right now, you're burning calories. There's a heat that's created inside of you. If we have that, that special machine, we can see all these glowing little embers in every single place where you're seat, seated because you actually are a heat creator. You're a burning entity. I find it so interesting that we talk about burning calories burning up energy, and that's exactly what the picture is for the New Testament believer, continually offering ourselves as a sacrifice, just as Jesus offered himself for us. Let me give you some scripture passages here. I'm not going to try to turn to them here because my little wants to stay with John 4, which is a great place to stay, but I'd like to read some of the other ones I'm going to give you 4 and then we're going to close. First of all, we have Peter, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 verses 4 through 6. Here Peter is talking about how the church, the Christian community, you and I as Christians are actually the spiritual equivalent of the Old Testament temple. We are the New Testament spiritual equivalent to the Old Testament sacrifices. One sacrifice is all we needed to take care of sin. But you and I are called on a daily basis to be burning up our life, really, as worship, so that the worship fragrance of our life is ascending To God. Peter says this, you are a spiritual house, you are a spiritual priesthood, you've been called to offer spiritual sacrifices. Not physical sacrifices, not blood sacrifices. Jesus took care of that, but yet still sacrifices need to be offered. It's your life, my life, that is to be offered. Let's go to the next one, Romans chapter 6. And again, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but you really need to read chapter 6 and 7, this whole um, uh, beautiful passage where Paul is talking about it, what it means to be dedicated to righteousness. And the, the English Standard Version uses the term present yourselves to righteousness versus if you mark in your Bibles, look at verse 13, verse 16, and verse 19. Um, I read the Holman Christian uh, most of the time, and it actually uses the word offer. And that really is the essence in the Greek. The word there means to stand next to something and offer. It's capturing the picture of the Old Testament worshiper who would come up to the altar and stand next to the altar and bring their burnt offering and place it on the altar and watch it be consumed by the fire and watch the smoke and the aroma ascend to God and hopefully their heart was right and God would smell a sweet savor. But Paul in this passage is talking about our dedication to the purposes of God and our dedication to um, the new resurrection resurrection light that god that jesus has offered to us and three times he uses the word offer yourself as instruments of righteousness offer yourself as instruments of righteousness offer yourself capturing this image of the old testament with a spirit and truth fulfillment two more And then we will move to close. Very famous one here. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Wish I could actually get this. I'd like to read that one. Oh, look at this. There you go. Romans 12. One and two. Listen to this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, this translation says present, but I prefer the word offer, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your very mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice, presenting, offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is really your spiritual worship. And the last passage It's one of my favorite passages here. Uh, Let's see if I could get to it. I'd like to read it. Oh, man, it's working. Let's go to 2 Corinthians and chapter 2, and let's just read verses 14 and 15. We're jumping into a Larger context, larger, yeah, context. But you need to read all of that really to get um, the full impact of this. But this is what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says this, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I'd love to deal with that, but I can't because it's capturing some pictures of Roman conquering that went on in those days. Then he says, and through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one of fragrance from death to death, To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? He realized that he was not sufficient for these things, that it was the living presence of the Spirit of God inside of him that enabled him to be a sweet aroma every place he went. Even when people reject the message, there is still a fragrance. When people receive it, there's still a fragrance. But I thought we'd just uh, close with this last uh, thought. That phrase, through us, he spreads the aroma of his knowledge in every place. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are really just kind of humbled by this incredible privilege. We were lost in our sins, and you came to redeem us. We were completely disqualified, and you qualified us to be acceptable offerings, sacrifices. Your sweet aroma on the cross qualifies us. And then you're asking us to live out a life of worship, be part of that restoration of the worship atmosphere everywhere we go. And I pray that you will strengthen us, enable us, to go in every setting that we find ourselves from day to day and trust you to release the aroma of the living Christ through our lives.